I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. In the Prado Museum in Madrid is one of the most extraordinary and important paintings ever made. Las Meninas is the work of Diego Rodríguez de Silva y Velázquez, arguably the greatest painter Spain has ever known. In Las Meninas, several figures from the Spanish court are gathered in the main chamber of the Royal Alcazar of Madrid, caught in a particular and mysterious moment, as if in a snapshot. Here, Laura Cumming, author and art critic for The Observer, describes the breathtaking moment when she encountered Las Meninas for the first time. Flashing up before me was the mirror-bright vision of a little princess, her young maidservants and the artist himself, all gathered in a pool of sunlight at the bottom of a great volume of shadow, an impending darkness that instantly sets the tenor of the scene. The moment you set eyes on them, you know that these beautiful children will die, that they're already dead and gone, and yet they live in the here and now of this moment, brief and bright as fireflies beneath the sepulchral gloom. And what keeps them here, what keeps them alive, or so the artist implies, is not just the painting, but you. You are here. You've appeared. That's the split-second revelation in their eyes. All these people looking back at you from their side of the room. The princess in her shimmering dress. The maids in their ribbons and bows. The tiny page and the tall, dark painter. The nun whose murmur is just fading away. And the chamberlain, silhouetted in the glowing doorway at the back. Everyone registers your presence. They were here like guests at a surprise party, waiting for your arrival, and now you've entered the room, their room, not the real one around you, or so it mysteriously seems. The whole scene twinkles with expectation. That is the first sensation on the threshold of that gallery in the Prado, where Las Meninas hangs, that you have walked into their world and become suddenly as present to them as they are to you. The image holds you there, stopped in surprise, motionless as the moment it represents, in which all these people pause too, except the little page nudging the stoic dog at the front. Everything is still, except for the circumambient air and the light fluttering across the white blonde hair of the princess, who stares at you with the candid curiosity of a child at the centre of a painting that is itself completely attentive. The dwarf gives you her frank consideration, hand on heart. Maids kneel or curtsy. Servants observe you all the way to the man in black, hovering on the threshold of this room, waiting to usher you into the next. And from behind the back of the great canvas on which he is working, the size of this one that you're looking at, steps the painter himself, taciturn, watchful, the magician momentarily revealed. But take a few steps towards this painting in all its astounding veracity, and the vision swithers. The princess's lustrous hair begins to look like a mirage, or a heat wave scintillating above a summer road that vanishes at your approach. The face of the lady dwarf dissolves into illegible brushstrokes, the figure in the background becomes inchoate at point-blank range, and you can no longer see where a hand stops and the tray it is holding begins. The nearer you get to the painting, 
the more these semblances of reality start to disappear to the point where it's impossible to fathom how the image could have been made in the first place. Everything is on the verge of dissolution and yet so vividly present that the sunshine in the painting seems to float free and drift out into the gallery. It is the most spellbinding vision in art. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm joined by Laura Cumming to discuss the life of Velasquez, this extraordinary painter in the stifling and gilded court of the Habsburg king, Philip IV, and the way in which he dignified every individual he painted, from the king down to some of the most vulnerable members of the court, in an inspiring, tantalising evocation of the greatness of 17th century art. I confess I only discovered Laura Cummings' amazing work a couple of years ago. I was judged for the Costa Biography Award in 2019 and her book on Chapel Sands, My Mother and Other Missing Persons, made our shortlist and we weren't the only ones. It was also shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize and the Bailey Gifford Prize and it was Waterstone's Book of the Month in April 2020. It's based on the disappearance of her mother as a child and it is one of the most moving, beautifully written and vividly evoked memoirs I have ever read and I urge you to get yourself a copy. And having read it, I turned to read Laura's other best-selling and prize-winning work, A Face to the World on Self-Portraits and The Vanishing Man, In Pursuit of Velázquez. And I was not disappointed, and you will not be either. So, Laura, hello. Thank you for the wonderful and unnecessarily kind introduction, Susanna. It was blush-making. You're too kind. Let's turn to Las Meninas. That's such an incredible introduction to the painting. It's such exquisite writing, and it brings the power and beauty of the painting, I think, really to life. It reminds me of G.M. Trebellion, who's a great historian who once said, the poetry of history lies in the quasi-miraculous fact that once on this earth, once on this familiar spot of ground, walked other men and women, as actual as we are today, thinking their own thoughts, swayed by their own passions, but now all gone. One generation vanishing into another, gone as utterly as we ourselves shall shortly be gone, like ghosts at cockcrow. Something about the way you've described that picture makes it absolutely feel so heart-wrenchingly sad that we can see these children there but they are long dead and the picture itself feels like it's defying death it's defying time yes for me this is the painting that tells me that everything can be kept alive in mind and also through the connection of the eyes because the scene that you are looking at in the palace represents the room in which Velasquez is painting the picture that you're looking at. And it was painted to appear in that very room. It's a great volume of space, a huge long room with these very, very high windows. And he's arranged the shutters in the palace so that just almost like a pencil beam of light is coming through of uh, this beautiful sun. You can imagine the high Spanish sun. As Trevelyan is saying, you know, we're all alive on the same earth, no matter that time has passed and our forebears are dead, the sun is still shining on the same spot. And the painter is painting in this gloom, but yet with this marvellous, almost gold and silver light coming into the room. And at the back, the door where the chamberlain is standing, there's a dark silhouette in a very small, distant doorway lit. I always think, and I'm scarcely alone, I imagine everybody who sees this painting thinks this, that that doorway is at one and the same time going to take you through the miles of corridors of this enormous, heavy, cold, indoor Spanish palace. But it's also the threshold into the next world and that you are all held there in that moment together before, as it were, still alive in the face of death. So I think the Trevelyan quote is absolutely perfect. Tell us about the figures that we see in this picture. Who are they? <laughs> the painting has become a fascination for historians in your profession, quite rightly. I cannot think of another painting that could have told you as much about the life of people living in that palace in 1656 or any other palace in history than this one does, not just because it's showing you what people wore, the white satin dress with its sort of blazing light that the little princess is wearing. She's very small. She's more or less in the centre of the painting. She's about four years old. She will die, as I'm afraid this is the truth of the time. She will die before she's 20. 
on either side of her she has two little maidservants. We know their names. We know the name of the lady dwarf who's got this sort of rather fantastically kind of defensive face. I love her. I feel she's the sort of moral centre of the painting. They are supplying little terracotta pots. They've got water on. We think it's probably high summer. Maybe the little princess needs something to drink. The dog has been identified. We even know that not exactly the name of the dog, but we know what breed he is. He's very special. He's from the hunting lodge. The nun, her name is known. She's a sort of loving nanny figure, but also a figure of moral rectitude to teach the little princess. Obviously, we know who the painter is. The page's name is known. You know, we know everybody except a figure for me I find very moving. He's just on the outskirts of the painting and his face is almost a blur and we don't know his name and nobody's ever known his name and I've tried very hard to find out who he was but we believe that his identity is bodyguard. So what you are looking at in this epochal painting is the staff of the court. These are the workers and famously of course right at the very back there's a glimmering oblong which is Velasquez's magnificent representation of an old mirror and in the mirror is a reflection held of Philip IV and his second wife and they are tiny, tiny. I mean, they're the postage stamp in the painting. So as always in the work of Velasquez, the great people are small and the small people are great so that although we do have the royal bosses, they're only a reflection, they're only a mirage. The princess is just a child. And the people who dominate in this painting are the workers. And it is, as you say, also a work of self-portraiture, that we have the painter himself appearing, and so strikingly as well, seems very important to this painting. Yes, I find his presence in the painting incredibly moving. He's often described as the most remote of all artists, remote as a star in outer space, because we're supposed to know so little about him. It's true that there are not very many documents in which he expresses himself, and it's true that we don't know all of the details of his life. And the comparison with Shakespeare is very often made. He's mysterious in that degree. I don't feel that at all. I feel that just as historians, I think justly, regard the painting as to some extent a social document which could be mined for all kinds of details to do with collars and footwear and payments and days of the week and prayers and the movement of people through the palace rooms one by one and the position of the chamberlain before the queen and so on. All of these things are available, I think, quite rightly to be learned from. But I even think that the self-portrait in this picture, which, of course, it's very reticent, is almost, I think, paternal figure, to all these young people around him. But at this point in his life, he's in his late 50s when he painted this picture, he does not just show himself creating the whole of this scene, though there's a wonderful fact, which is that the palette he's holding shows dots of paint on its edges that represent all the different colours that are used in creating the scene you're looking at, and also all the relationships between the heads are echoed in a sort of beautiful ring in that palette. So many things are being said about what the painter can create and what he can summon with the tip of his brush. And his fingers in the painting are like brush strokes themselves. They're almost like brushes. Much is being conveyed to us in this self-portrait. And equally, the things that people have always found, I think, very hard to take, very hard to equate with the greatness of his art is the greatness of his ambition as a courtier. And the self-portrait shows the summation, I suppose, Susanna, of this in his life. So he has the key. He's wearing a black satin doublet. He's a very beautiful man, very handsome. You can deduce his taciturn nature from it. He certainly put himself in the shadows to allow the other figures to be in the light. But it's not unembarrassed in its showmanship, the costume he's wearing, because he has the red cross painted upon the front, later painted on as well, which is an interesting aspect of the painting. The Knights of Santiago, and he has spent his whole life gradually and then more rapidly ascending the rungs of the social ladder at court. And this is the greatest social achievement he can reach. And lots of people in the court have tried to stop him from getting that far. So he was an envied figure, I often feel probably because he was rather, quite apart from his brilliance, he also was very watchful and taciturn. I think the paintings 
tell you that, but he also has tucked into his belt the key to all the doors in the palace. And this, you have to imagine a palace with thousands of people moving through it. It was said at the time, a lot of people wrote about the palace, that you could walk miles crisscrossing, running to and fro, getting hither and yon with whatever people wanted you to bring as a servant, for example. And he has the right to open the doors. And something in the painting is about opening the doors in the palace. There is the man at the back, who's also called beautifully Velasquez, Jose Nieto Velasquez, and he is the Queen's Chamberlain. And Velasquez in this painting is not just the greatest possible painting, but it is also a portrait of him as the King's Chamberlain. And that's about as high as you would ever get. You are allowed to open any room. You can usher anyone through. You have freedom in this respect socially and professionally as a courtier, but you also have freedom as an artist to put that key in your belt in your self-portrait. I love it. You've suggested in the colours of his palette that we should imagine that the canvas we see is him painting the picture we see, but it feels like there was other possibilities with that mirror at the back. And also, it almost feels like Velázquez is painting us in some ways, because <laughs> we're the yes. ones looking at it. So it's exactly right. It is a tremendously refined double take I suppose, to put it in the kind of lowest possible, but also the biggest possible terms, because when you go into the Prado, that is the double take. First of all, they're all looking at you and you've arrived into their world. But then there is this reflection at the back, which I don't think anyone sees straight away. I'd be surprised if they did on the first, the sort of coup de théâtre when you first see it. But it's clear when you do see the glimmering mirror with its beveled edges at the back and these two little figures in it, that someone's standing where you're standing. So you are standing where they stood and you are just an ordinary mortal. They are kings and queens. And again, I feel it's a very political painting because it allows you to be raised up as a sort of commoner (laughs) into the role of the king and queen. Now, the painting that you're looking at, well, what is he painting on this canvas? And for many people, he's actually painting the king and queen. He must be because they're reflected in the mirror at the back. For other people, he's painting this vision that you're seeing because he can do anything he wants with art. He's a magician. He can make you stand on the same spot as the king and queen. And for me, I think it's probably attracted more interest from people involved in philosophy and psychology and optics and engineering and architecture and social history and so on than any other painting could possibly, maybe the exception of the Arnolfini wedding in the National Gallery. But I think the idea that it's double time and all possibilities are open and we are all greeting you and you're all greeting us and that time is a continuum and so on is the very least of this painting's brilliance. For me, there is no question that you are supposed to be really thinking about where the king and queen are standing and whether you're standing on exactly on the same spot and how can you be standing there if they're standing there and so on, because that would make it a dumbass painting, really. And it isn't. It accepts every interpretation and even to the point where I would happily hear disputed by someone else because I think it's open to all minds. And you quote Luca Giordano saying that Las Meninas represents the theology of painting. What do you think that means? Because you've mentioned everything else. I thought I mentioned your theology as well. Yes, the theology of painting. Again, also, you know, an immensely disputed phrase. All religion, all knowledge, all belief, everything that can be, I suppose, is probably what he meant. I don't know. I mean, for me, I wouldn't say it was the theology of painting. I would say it was the soul of all painting. Possibly it's reaching for some sort of quasi-religious word there, yes. It seems utterly original. What is it about it that makes it feel like Velázquez was inventing a new kind of painting? And do you think he could have seen anything like it before or is it entirely invented by him? Well, the Arnolfini, he had seen it because it came through his court. So yes, I think he learned a great deal from it. And he was an immense scholar of paintings. He was also the curator of the King's Collection and acquired paintings for him. And when you go to the Prado, you're looking at what Velasquez gave you. Gave it to the court first, but then you have it now. So everything you're seeing, up to a certain stage, obviously, but in terms of the paintings, more or less is his decision. You know, Philip's father collected paintings and his grandfather before him, and so those are there too. But for example, when you look at Titians in the Prado, they were all bought by Velasquez for the king. And again, an intensely modest man, I think. The paintings 
that are shown in the back of Las Meninas on the walls of this palace room, this enormous apartment, are not by Velázquez, even though Velázquez's own paintings filled the corridors. I think that we can estimate there were probably 120 paintings Probably not more. He measured his genius in thimblefuls, is a beautiful <laughs> phrase about him. And almost all of these paintings hung where he made them in the Alcazar, in this colossal palace, which alas is no more because it burned down and one of the paintings that was rescued from it, and from my point of view, <laughs> would have been the most catastrophic thing in the history of culture. Das Meninas was passed by the servants out of the window just in time not to be consumed by the flames. And I think the only damage was a burn mark to the cheek of the little princess, but they rescued the painting. And I've always felt that historically we know what order some of these paintings were rushed out of the windows. It was Christmas Eve and they were thrown, some of them, into the snow. Paintings are very much more resilient than people ever know. And the fact that this one survived being shoved through a window that was probably too small for it is only an example of their hardiness, especially the paintings of Velasquez, which have survived. If I may, if you can imagine for a moment the courtier in this illuminated doorway at the back of the painting, now imagine you're following him. So he goes up two or three steps. We have plans of the Alcazar, so we know this. He goes along a very, very long corridor, down a dozen steps, up another, <laughs> another staircase, round and round and round. And as he's going along, he's passing through enfilades of rooms quite often. So he's passing from well, a huge room to a slightly smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And all along the way, he is passing paintings by Velasquez. They are on the palace walls. They are noted by other people. Members of the court appear in those paintings. It's to me a kind of rather wonderful because I like to think of Velasquez always being able to see his entire oeuvre, pretty much apart from portraits that were sent for diplomatic purposes abroad. He always had a sense of his own evolution growing around him in this enormous stone building. And if I may, I'd just like to read you, this is a French ambassador who has arrived at this incredibly grand court. Velasquez, who was born in Seville, gets this job at court when he's very, very young. He's only 22. And when he gets the job, which he gets by doing a painting so incredible that, you know, everybody goes, oh my God, it's the real thing, you know, all the usual old strains of art praise that you get looks just like a living being and so on. Of course, there was more to it than that. But he had a special thing that he did, which was as a young man, he could paint someone's portrait very, very fast and have it sent to them, which he did. And this is one of the ways in which he got this magnificent job that everybody envied him for, the king's painter. When he arrived at this court, the palace had 167 huntsmen for the horses and sports, 300 guards and a corps de ballet of 350 servants dancing attendance on the monarchs as they moved through this extraordinary palace. There was a special servant whose only job was to bring and remove his gloves and put them on again. There was another servant whose job was to bring a gold plate and that was his only job. And you should bear in mind that Velasquez, towards the end of his life, actually ends up designing dinner plates because he does everything. He's tireless and so on. But I mean, I always find that absolutely heartbreaking. <laughs> but the French ambassador is observing the scenes in the palace. And he says of Philip IV, all his actions and all his occupations are always the same and move with such regularity that day by day, he knows exactly what he will do by the hour for the rest of his life. So you have to imagine this sort of incredible, slow spectacle unfolding day by day. And if you were coming like the French ambassador to meet him, you had to go through something infinitely more complicated than passport control. You had to go through a succession of rooms, which grew smaller and smaller, but you had to wait in each room for an allotted time. And eventually you would come to the final room where you have to imagine that they've never seen this king, except in portraits that rather primp him up. And when they eventually get there, they will see something that looks enormously more like an actual Velasquez painting, which is the young king with this sort of strawberry blonde hair and a kind of wavelet and the beginnings of the famous moustache he had, which was the upturned waxed moustache, which was parodied. Well, actually more pastiched, perhaps one should say, by Salvador Dali, if you want to think of what did that moustache look like. And this terrific dangling Habsburg jaw. So no beauty and the early paintings by Velasquez show him, I think, quite sort of adenoidal, very white. You can see the blue veins in the temples of the face and so on. I mean, he was not a beautiful man. 
And I think sometimes that he looks tragic even in youth, and he certainly does in late life. But so when they finally get through almost like an assault course of dignitaries and so on, room after room, where they finally get to the room where he is, and he is standing by a table in the final chamber, and he would raise his hat as they entered, place it on the table, and remain motionless throughout the audience. He very rarely spoke, and they would then say whatever they had to say. And he was described as Philip was the statue that very occasionally spoke. People said of him that he's only known to have laughed three times in public during his entire life. I don't know if that's true, because he certainly enjoyed the theatre very much. But this is the court that Velasquez is arriving at when he comes as a young man. And he very, very rapidly starts to ascend to privy chamber and superintendent of works and so on, even as he's painting these extraordinary scenes of this archaic, absolutely theatrical world. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions, and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers, and over on the Warfare Podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. reminds me actually of reading the emperor Kapuczynski's portrait of Haile Selassie actually that sort of extraordinary yes. court. Yes I think that's a really excellent comparison. I do believe that African leaders have looked hard at western painting and you make the analogy there with the Kapuczynski book and I think that's exactly right and I always think of Bokassa getting himself up to look like an anger painting of Napoleon, you know, really specific, I mean, in every single detail, you know, to do with leopard skins and ermine. And so I think, yes, these traditions carry on. And Philip is unusual, though, I think, because lots of kings and queens, of course, have been very interested in music and theatre and balls and debaucheries and all sorts of entertainments. But I think he is really unique in his relationship with Velasquez. I personally think that Velasquez dignifies Philip. And I don't just mean in the portraits. I think that the relationship between them, my feeling is that he dignified the king just by his own presence and their conversation together. I think there's an immense refinement and tact and extraordinary degree of insight and respect in everything that Velasquez paints. And I can't help imagining Philip 
who is known to have given him much longer sittings than he gave any other artist, and many people painted Philip IV. I can't help thinking he went to see him because he wanted to talk. So the art formed the life to some extent. Other people found that palace horrendous. There's a wonderful quote from Lope de Vega, the playwright who was writing for that court, where he says, Palaces are tombs. If they had feelings, I'd be sorry for the very figures in the palace tapestries. And he's talking about these immense tapestries which hung in the court, partly to keep the place warm, but also because it was a royal fashion. Of Lope de Vega's plays, it seems clear that Velasquez designed sets for them. He was required to do so much. I mean, he even had to stump up the money for firewood. Velasquez, the painter in the court, stumps up the money for the firewood one winter in that palace because they'd run out of money. Obviously, this is a court absolutely sinking into corruption, debt, loss and failure. It's supposed to be the sort of great moment of Spanish history fighting and supposedly winning the 30-year war. They own huge quantities of the globe and so on. But one of the early paintings by Velasquez of a courtier shows the courtier wearing a collar called a goya. And these were very sharp. They're like white porcelain plate collars. And they were terrifically well painted by Velasquez and by other artists of the period, but they're made of cardboard. And the reason that people are wearing them is to save on starch, because, you know, if you had to keep starching a new collar every week, it would cost you. So these things just were painted pieces of cardboard. I mean, it's a sort of total front. And again, I find it very moving. The archives of that palace, which have been mined absolutely brilliantly by Spanish historians for centuries now. And among them, they have managed to find about four or five hundred tiny details that give us a picture of that court and specifically of Velasquez moving through that court. Because he's a very elusive figure, but we know the number of logs needed and how few they had. And we know what loans they had to take out to pay for the cleaning of pearls for the princess's necklace, the bills for aubergine and mustard. And I've always been very astonished by this detail, which I think tells you so much. The Prince of Wales, this is Charles I, who's on this ridiculous journey to try and court a Spanish royal during the so-called Spanish match. It's a complete catastrophe. She can't stand him. He comes home. It's dreadful. Anyway, he's at this point the Prince of Wales, and he arrives not very long after Velasquez himself at this court in 1623. And it's a complete disaster. He's very rude. He brings the Duke of Buckingham with him and the Duke of Buckingham behaves appallingly. And they go around trying to buy up all the great works of art, Raphael, Tish and so on. And very many rudenesses take place. And Buckingham can't understand why he has to be passed through that enfilade of rooms and so on. And eventually they manage to go home. <laughs> and the parting gift to the Prince of Wales to wave him off or away, you might say, 100 pairs of gloves as a gift. And they haven't even got enough money to buy one pair of gloves at this point in this palace. I mean, there are English travellers who go to that court in the 1650s who find that they don't actually have their own bread in this court by this stage because they can't afford it anymore. I mean, they were absolutely in hock. So it's fireworks and plays that took place, waterborne on the lake of the Retiro Palace. And in London, we have the great portrait by Velasquez of Philip IV in brown and silver. And you can see from that spectacular piece of painting that the silver is silver, you know? I mean, he's wearing a coat woven with silver and they can't afford bread. So in a way, almost a kind of parody of the Spanish Hidalgo, you know, the immense dignity, even when your shoes are falling apart, I suppose. And what could have dignified it more than this painter who has left us this record of such beauty and depth and mortality? That's such a powerful image you've created of this facade, you know, collars of cardboard. And it is extraordinary that the painter who does dignify it himself doesn't have a noble background. He doesn't come from money himself. Could you tell us a bit about who he was before he came to the court, although he was so young, of course, when he did? He's the son of a notary in Seville. They're an intellectual family, but they don't have any money. He's apprenticed to a court painter in Seville when he's very, very young and very rapidly starts to paint works that so far exceed anything that anyone can believe is possible that he fairly rapidly gets from Seville to Madrid. And I think in a way, you asked me whether or not I thought he'd invented 
what I think of as the sort of play as a piece of performance art almost, where everybody is seen and everyone is seeing and it is theatrical. Yeah, it's the staging of an event, Las Meninas. And although certainly he sees the Arnolfini portrait, he painted a work as a very young man, still 16, 17, Christ in the House of Mary and Martha. And if you know this wonderful, wonderful work, it shows a very irritable old lady who's sort of telling off a maidservant and the maidservant is slightly crying and she's got a pestle and mortar and on the table next to her this amazing dazzling theatre of objects silver fish and white gleaming garlic and eggs and so on and behind them through a window is Mary having an audience with Jesus it's like a split screen almost and the reason I think although the Arnolfini painting must have had a huge effect on his thinking He's already doing it, and he's only about maybe maximum about 18 years old. The maidservant is turning to look at us and with tears in her eyes and appealing to us. And it is already the question of who's on whose side of the painting. Whatever's going on, what strikes you first is this staged connection between the character in the painting and the person looking at her from outside. We look at her, she's looking back, and she's conscious of our looking. And to me, it's a sort of open-ended performance and a prefiguring of Las Meninas many years in advance. So yes, he gets to court, he marries young, he has children, and he outlives them. He has this in common with Philip IV, who loses many children. And he painted a portrait of possibly the most beloved child of all the many children Philip had. Philip was married, first of all, at the age of 10 to the 13-year-old Princess Elizabeth of France. They had seven children and then much later married again to his 14-year-old niece. <laughs> and so the inbred Habsburg line will come to an end, the Spanish line will come to an end because the final child, Charles II, dies prematurely senile and is, I think it's right that he couldn't actually close his mouth and drooled all the time. And it's an absolutely tragic story. But the child who seems to have been most beloved and was fortunate enough to survive infancy, Balthazar Carlos, his son, and there's a wonderful painting of Balthazar Carlos. It's a sort of parody of an equestrian portrait. So the person on the rearing charger is this little tiny four-year-old prince just holding on. And in the background is literally, I suppose they're like figures at the opera. They're in a box. There's a building behind, a magnificent um, palace behind, and there's a balcony. And on the balcony are the king and the queen, and they're looking at us. And then there are other courtiers, including a dwarf, we will talk about the dwarves and the political head of boss of the regime at this point, Olivares, and they're all looking at us. So again, it's a kind of spectacle. It's the Spanish quarter spectacle, I suppose. And this little boy will grow up to the age of 16, whereupon he dies. And Philip is, by all accounts, completely broken by the death of his son, possibly from smallpox, though I see that some historians now think it was appendicitis. I don't know. It's so hard to say from a distance of these many 400 years what people died of. Yes, but this boy was often painted by Velasquez and I think he understood how important that child was to Philip. There is a magnificent portrait of that child's teacher and that child's teacher was a dwarf. Yes, I wanted to pick up on this because one thing that you're saying is that Velasquez is painting often the king and queen in the distance, also obviously portraits of Philip IV as well. But as well as those scenes from his early life when he's painting ordinary people, he does paint the most vulnerable at court and he paints dwarfs a lot, doesn't he? Yes, the paintings of dwarfs are just, I can't imagine greater portraits in a sense. They are more remarkable possibly even than the portraits of certainly of the royal family. There is a group of them in the Prado. When we all come out of lockdown and everyone can go, there's nothing like it. They're in a room together, as they should be, I think, united, and as they were probably shown, it seems, when they were first painted. They are so powerfully distinct in their force of personality is unbelievable. And the one I wanted to speak about is this painting of a dwarf called Sebastian de Mora. And he's sometimes known as the soldier dwarf by scholars because he's wearing red and silver and he's dressed to some extent as a soldier. And he's sitting in the great no man's land that Velasquez invented in portraiture, which is a sort of absolutely indistinct space, which is almost the aura of the person. And yet at the same time, I've always felt it was probably in some way depicting the light inside the palace 
The palace was made entirely of stone. It wasn't covered in decorations. You could imagine this dwarf sitting on the floor, which is how he's depicted, against stone and light. And this is partly his aura, partly the architecture, I think. He's extremely handsome, dark-haired, very much the Hidalgo Spaniard. And his face is absolutely filled with experience, pain, dignity, knowledge. This is tremendous Shakespearean, yes, portrait. And we know who de Mora was because he had worked with the family for a long time. And he's the person who teaches Balthazar to ride that horse. And when Balthazar dies, he leaves his best silver dagger to the dwarf in his will. And this was his prized possession, you know. So for a very, very long time, this is something I get very heated about. Um, Historians and specifically art historians have complained about these pictures of dwarfs. The palace vermin, they were called by an art historian in the 1920s, in a catalogue of a show of those paintings in the Prado, the palace vermin. How awful. Yes. (laughs) And there are several paintings of dwarves in that room. Another one, for example, shows the dwarf as ambassador. And it's the only time you ever see a painting by Velasquez that shows someone reading or appearing scholarly. So he's deep in a book with a sort of snowy mountain range behind him in a magnificent hat. And he is a dwarf who deeply reads. I mean, he was a scholar. So again, people, I don't feel that they can speak this way of either, but they certainly can't speak of, of dwarves in this way. This is, you know, execrable. But equally, to assume that the court mocked them or that the Spanish court didn't hold them in any esteem is also, I think, ahistorical because they had these jobs, you know, and you see them very often. They appear in paintings where they are almost at the heart of the painting. They will appear in a picture of a scene at court and then there will be, the scenes could be very distant and you might see a small figure that you know which dwarf it is because he painted these large portraits of them which hang in the Prado and are so, so magnificent. Another one that you talk about in The Vanishing Man is a Moorish slave, in other words, a man of African descent, who is painted in one of those colours that were banned and also exquisite. (laughs) And the dignity of that is really striking. Could you talk a little bit about that painting? Oh, I love that painting. Yes, this masterpiece, which is almost life-size. You can see it in New York. And I always remember the painter Chuck Close saying about it that it was the most kissable mouse in the history of art. And it shows Juan de Barreja, who, as you say, a slave of Moorish descent, who had been working with him from the 1630s. And Juan is a painter himself. He starts out learning the trade and grinding the pigments and priming the canvases and making studio copies. And it's known I don't know if it's general consent that he made a copy of this painting. And there were occasions in the past where people used to say this was his painting, this great masterpiece by Velasquez. But certainly, I think Pareja will have prepared all the canvas and all the pigments used to make this magnificent portrait of him. And he is poised, proud, magnificent, held in heroic pose. He looks as if he might have you know, been a commander on land or sea. He's wearing the most voluptuous, flowing white collar over his black velvet costume. And I think the face, well, I mean, he's tremendously beautiful. And it's a very, very expressive face, highly dignified. Again, with so many of the portraits of Velasquez, there are a thousand nuances in his paintings and people see different things there. So some people think that he's holding himself up with a kind of military bearing and others see a kind of coolness and maybe some disdain in the face. And he goes with Velasquez to Rome, practically the only time that Velasquez ever really gets out of that palace or any of the Spanish palaces. He goes on a visit to Rome and Juan goes with him and in Rome he paints this painting. He sends it round Rome with its subject. So Juan holds the painting of Juan and he carries it around and there's a contemporary account he drew him, it's the same old, same old, which is, you know, how alive, etc. He drew him with such similitude that the Romans stood a while looking sometimes on the picture, sometimes on the original, always with amazement and even a sort of terror. I think the idea here, the reason I would like to mention that is because what they would have seen in Rome with this painting that was supposedly still wet is the man, the image of him, 
But also, and this is the great innovation, advance, genius of Velasquez, the fact that the thing they're looking at is paint, because he never tries to conceal his brush marks, his special effects, and so on. They could have looked at that painting and seen that the hand is a blur. They could have looked at that painting and seen that the ear is just one tiny dab of red, and yet you see it as a whole ear, and so on. So people often press Velasquez's name into service when they're talking about Impressionism, but it's something completely beyond that. It's a kind of optical understanding I don't think has ever been surpassed or preceded. So when they looked at him, they knew they were looking at a painting, and yet that painting looked like a man. It does almost defy understanding, doesn't it? Yeah. The sort of magic that Velasquez carries out in his brushstrokes <laughs> and how they ever coalesce into an image is certainly beyond my understanding anyway. Well, and mine too, and so I hope it will always remain, as with Shakespeare. <laughs> People compare Rembrandt with Shakespeare, but I compare Velasquez with Shakespeare. A painting by... Velasquez was discovered, quotes, discovered in the Metropolitan Museum of Art at the end of the 20th century. And it had been there all along and it had been overpainted and all the usual things that happened to it. And somebody thought it was worth commissioning a proper conservation. And a wonderful Scottish conservator called Michael Gallagher was there in the middle of the night, I love this story, cleaning the painting. And he said it was like looking at the bottom of a dark, murky pond, the surface. And as he began to clean it, he saw a radiance coming up underneath the cotton wool bud. And he said he knew immediately it was a Velasquez because it had the magical radiance that you really can't actually explain. And once they'd cleaned it, they then did all the obvious x-rays. There's nothing to see in an x-ray. You cannot see where the brush mark starts or ends. There's no underpainting. There's no structural work. There's no drawing. It's just as if they were breathed onto the canvas. And mentioning Rembrandt is interesting because Velasquez was living at the same time as Rembrandt and Caravaggio and Rubens and all the rest of them. Was he as famous as them in his lifetime? Well, no. Palaces are tombs, Lope de Vega. No, it's astonishing how few people ever heard of Velasquez when he was painting. His work was deeply envied by other Spanish painters, but it was scarcely seen outside the place where it was made and lived behind those thick walls. So there's a sense in which, I mean, there are discussions about how much his position at court stifles his art, but it certainly does in terms of its dissemination. I mean, Philip IV has him all to himself. (laughs) Yes, and some of these paintings do eventually end up rippling out into the world because portraits by Velasquez are sent, marriage portraits basically of princesses are sent abroad and, and even paintings of Philip are sent abroad. So people do see heads But they don't see much else. And when I think of what he achieved in Rome, the paintings that he, almost one of his greatest paintings is one of his smallest, and it's the painting of the gardens of the Villa Medici by twilight. And it's just a tiny, beautiful, magical thing with the tall trees and these kind of flakes of light coming through them and tranquility and a doorway that's been barricaded up and you just kind of long to see what's behind it and it's just an incredible work of art much beloved by many people and very romantic I think because it always makes you think of the first time you ever go to Rome or Florence or any Italian city you know where everything is so permanently Romeo and Juliet you know (laughs) yes a lot of people have mourned the loss of all the paintings he might have made if he hadn't been going to meetings and designing crockery and putting on staging shows and generally being a bureaucrat, really, at the court. But given the ones we have, how could we complain? So let's return to Las Meninas, which is painted when he has been at court for 30-odd years. But it's not long, is it, before his own death? What becomes of him? Yes, he goes on his final trip, again as a dignitary and a courtier, with the king out of the country to have a meeting to discuss another royal betrothal. And while they are there, he catches a fever and comes home, or he catches the fever there and comes home, or he gets the fever when he gets home, it's not really known. And lots of his earliest biographer, for example, and other biographers since have said that this was just the final overwork, because he never stopped working. But anyway, he comes home and a fever carries him off in a matter of days, and we don't know where his remains are. He was buried, yet another story of Napoleonic troops coming in and devastating 
cities. The church where he was originally buried was taken apart by the French and his actual coffin appears to have vanished. The Spanish have never found it. And when I was writing the book about Velasquez, I tried really hard to get an official in Madrid to take me around churches. And I mean, everybody's looked for it and it'll never be found. And in a way, it seems only of a piece with this man who was so reticent that he should have removed himself from what would have undoubtedly become a kind of celebrity grave, I think. But that he remains for us here in Las Beninas. Yes. And when I was writing the book, I knew that in London there was a painting which I hadn't really connected right back to Las Meninas, and that is the portrait of José Nieto Velázquez, the Queen's Chamberlain, within the doorframe at the back of Las Meninas, and his real portrait, painted several years before. I think courtier to courtier, friend to friend, the two Chamberlains together, is one of the greatest pictures we have in London, and it is hanging in number one London, Apsley House, Wellington's home, at Marble Arch, and it's an absolutely astonishing painting. Again, a very dignified, dark-haired man, and truly I have stood in that room <laughs> looking at it so many, many, many times, and I can't fathom. It's as if smoke had settled onto the surface of something very fine like tissue, and there is this mirage of this man, and yet the presence of him in all his dignity and probably all his sorrow and probably his overwork, is there in that room all the time and rescued by Wellington from another one of the Napoleonic battlefields and brought back to London. And so we're blessed and he's on the cover of my book. Well, we have been blessed to hear you talk about these things. I was thinking about asking you about your writing because I'm such a great fan of yours, but it turns out that the reason you write so beautifully is you speak so beautifully, you think so beautifully. So, <laughs> oh, no. so that doesn't give me any tips at all. <laughs> You're too kind, Susanna. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been wonderful to hear you talk on these things. Not at all. Also, I would like to thank you so much because it's the first time since the book came out that I have returned to it. And it's a bit awful because I'm supposed to be writing a book on 17th century Dutch art, which I'm loving doing. But every time I looked at the Velasquez paintings again, I thought, he has my heart. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I urge anyone listening to this to rush out and get a copy of The Vanishing Man. I get basically, as I say, everything Laura Cumming writes is just you know, sort of nectar to the brine. So I think you should get hold of this one. And it's just been lovely to talk about him and to capture a sense of his extraordinary genius through your words. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.